Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. If you're like me, you booked all sorts of bird hunting adventures into your calendar particularly focused on North Dakota and South Dakota this autumn. Uh, Populations have been on the rise there for the last couple of years. And um, if you looked at the weather for, or the weather reports um, for the Dakotas over the course of the last December, January, February, it was pretty mild in the Dakotas. Very little snow, not a whole heck of a lot of snow on the ground. Birds had easy access to food all winter long. And I was set for an explosion of bird numbers. A mild winter um, in, in bird numbers on the rise. And I was pretty optimistic that things were going to be maybe the best in my lifetime in the Dakotas. And unfortunately, a dry spring has turned into a pretty significant drought over uh, North and South Dakota. So today on this episode of On the Wing Podcast, I've dialed up uh, Rachel Bush, our North Dakota State Coordinator, and Matt Morlock, our South Dakota State Coordinator, to talk to us about the bird outlook for hunting season, given the drought uh, in both North Dakota and South Dakota. And I'm excited to welcome back both Rachel and Matt to On The Wing podcast. And and they're both smiling because it's rained there in the last couple of days. Um, That's good news. Matt, Matt particular, we were on before, uh, before we hit record and a little bit of, a little bit of precipitation makes things a lot um, a lot nicer this time of year, doesn't it, Matt? It does. I'm glad I wasn't in Scott's shoes and did this last week because you would have got mm-hmm. a whole different Matt on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny what, what some rain will do. Well, let's uh, let's start with introductions. We'll we'll start with Rachel. Rachel hasn't been on the podcast in gosh, I think we did like episode five together. It was, it was single digits. And I drove up to, was it Stickle Stack? Stickle Stack? Stickled Stickled Lodge, Lodge. yeah, near Fort Ransom. Um, That was a, that was a fun conversation from, gosh, two years ago now. But welcome back to On The Wing Podcast. For folks that didn't listen to that particular episode, um, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, thanks, Bob. I'm glad to be on. It's always fun to chat pheasants, and I'm always happy to talk about North Dakota. Uh, I guess just a little bit about me. Uh, I'm currently the state coordinator for Pheasants Forever here in North Dakota. Um, I've kind of I've been with the organization since 2011. So, um, you know, as we grow, I'm getting to be one of those senior staff where we have you know team meetings, and I, I don't recognize as many of the young faces as I used to. Um, I started off as a farm bill biologist. So I spent a lot of time working with private landowners, um, working through farm bill programs, um, got the opportunity to move up in the senior role and kind of lead the team here in North Dakota. And then there was just a need for just a larger leadership role in the state. 
Um, so I applied and became the state coordinator back in 2015. So since then, I've been able to um, work with the great team we have here on the ground. We have a couple, we have three precision ag and conservation specialists and an education and outreach coordinator, plus our, our great field rep and all our chapters. Um, but yeah, it, it's great to be able to to sit in the seat and help set the direction for PF and QF here in North Dakota. And you're a Michigan native, right? Which I am, we have I'm, in I'm, common. I'm a Michigander, although I'm not a, you know, native Uper, although, you know, did go to college up in the UP at Lake Superior State. So I like to think I'm an adopted Uper. <laughs> um, and if I were to ever move back to Michigan, it would be to the UP. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think didn't you you moved your parents recently to North Dakota? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I've pretty much set myself like they moved out. They born and raised in Michigan. You know, within a five mile radius of where they've always lived, and then you know we up and moved to North Dakota. And, we have their only grandchild. So I'm not sure they moved out here to see me. It was more to spend time with the grandchild. But yeah, they live they live about an hour and 20 minutes away, which I'll, I'll say this on the podcast because I'll tell them is the perfect distance. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they're right in the middle of pothole country. So we, we mm. go over there a lot during the fall. It's kind of our uh, hunting cabin away from home, I guess. And, and uh, you have absolutely fallen head over heels in love with the state of North Dakota. Anybody that follows you on social media can see that. I think there was a post maybe a week ago that you posted a collection of beautiful photos of the prairie and wildlife in North Dakota. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but the basic um, message was just keep flying over this country. <laughs> Uh, you leave leave North Dakota to to the few of us that live here and love it. Yeah, you, yep. you really do love North Dakota, don't you? I do. It has become, you know, we moved out here oh, for the first time in 2003. Um, and I'll tell you, I did not. I came from Michigan, you know, came out from the UP where it's forested and trees. Um, and I did not like the prairie at first. My first season out here, it was dry and brown. And then... Um, and then it just grew on me. I think it maybe was that first October I spent out here or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is this is home now. Um, I'm adopted an adopted North Dakotan. I hope you know they see me as. But yep, this is home. And that post was from 701 Day because we're such a small state. We only have one area code. So July first, <laughs> 701. That's right. <laughs> Very fun. And, and well, the the last bit of uh, trivia is you were on, I think, you, you've been on a couple rooster road trips, right? And with your, at the time, Young Black Lab, I believe. That was that was probably 10 years ago now? I think the first rooster road trip I was on, we were in Southeast North Dakota. And yeah, I had my lab, Belle, um, with us. And she was pretty young at that time. I, mm -hmm. I, I'd have to go back and look at pictures, but... Yep, she was on the first one. And then the second one I was on, um, my younger lab was just a pup. And my younger lab's seven now. So they've both had some guest appearances on the Rooster Road <laughs> trip. But. Yeah, folks uh, looked at um, past photo galleries. You'd see Rachel and her black lab in front of a, a plot sign. I remember that photo vividly. Really, really beautiful photo 
Um, I remember that shot. It was with that pheasant. It was, I think I might've impressed you guys and showed you that I can, I can wing shoot. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, all right. It, introducing also the, the second biologist into the conversation. Um, also been on the podcast. Have you been on one or two, Matt? Twice. Yep. Twice, but both at the Redland Art Museum, right? Right. Yeah. Um, that's a beautiful setting to do these things. That's a great place. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little better than virtually, a little, right? A little better than, yeah, sitting across the computer from each other. I, I'm getting tired of this thing. <laughs> well, um, Matt Morlock, our state coordinator for South Dakota, uh, been on a couple of podcasts, also been on a few rooster road trips. Uh, go ahead and uh, introduce our listeners to, to your background a little bit, Matt. Yeah, well, being one of the, the old timers now, which I don't know how that ever happened, one of the old timers in the company, I've gotten to do quite a few fun things like this. And you know, I always enjoy sitting down and doing these podcasts. They're a lot of fun. Um, I started with PF um, back in 2003. So just over 18 years ago, I started here as a farm bill biologist like Rachel um, and spent about 10 years as a farm bill biologist out of that Brookings, South Dakota area. Um, it was a really fun job, especially there. You know, that's in the heart of our our farm country, our really good mm -hmm. farm ground. Um, so it was always a challenge, but it was fun. Um, you know, working those different angles with producers and stuff like that. Um, from there, after 10 years of, of doing the farm bill biologist thing, I, I don't know what happened, but I got a wild hair and was a data analyst for the company for a few years. Um, That's true. Right. I, I sort of forgot that. Yeah. You anyway, were the master of spreadsheets, I think. I, I learned a lot about Excel that I had forgotten from grad school. Um, anybody that knows me knows that that's not my thing at the end of the day um it was a fun it was a great job it was a fun job but um i did that for about two years and and had enough of that um handed that off to rachel hovland who did a way better job than i did um yeah from there then i moved into into this job as a state coordinator for south dakota got to come back to my state roots um this is where i was born and raised um Grew up in Watertown, went to college at South Dakota State, um, and just have never really left the state. Just I've always loved it. Um, it's a great place to be at. You can get anywhere in a plane really quick. So being based out of South Dakota is the best place to be. <laughs> well, you might get you might get an argument from our counterpart. Oh no, um, this is the this is the better Dakota down here. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, the bit of trivia that I remember about you, Matt, it, well, two bits of trivia. Um, your dad was a bit of a legendary biologist in his own right, right? In his own mind, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no, my, uh, my dad spent thirty about 35 years with South Dakota Game Fish and Parks um, as a game warden and a, a program manager, played you know several roles with the company. But yeah, that's, eh, you know, he always, I remember when I was, going to college he's like are you sure you really want to do this mm. and i'm like you raised me around it how do you expect me to do something else i mean yeah i was out banning geese when i was five years old and that's just kind of where i grew up around it so yeah it was kind of born into me and the other bit of trivia um the only well not the only time now this the first time i ever hunted with a dog named Bob <laughs> uh, was with you. You named yeah. an English setter of yours, Bob. And when 
for a guy named Bob hunting with a dog named Bob, it's extremely confusing, more so for me than probably your dog, because there were F-bombs preceding my name, <laughs> which isn't all that out of the ordinary, but it doesn't happen to me in the field very often. <laughs> right. That's one thing I would never do to you is, is drop that. But that, that setter mine was not the best hunting dog in the world. He had a mind of his own. So he got a lot of them. <laughs> I, was gonna say, right. I remember, I think, you know, Bob, the person probably, Matt probably has a higher opinion of Bob, the person than Bob, the dog. Way, way better. You know, when, when, when I sent Bob down the road, it did not, was not a sad day. He, uh, he was a setter that didn't like to point. Mm. <laughs> so he yeah. did, he apparently didn't want to be where you wanted him to be either because i remember bob get over here like what what where do you want well, that, me it's like i'm I, not I, talking to you i'm talking to the dog and i remember one time we we're hunting the cattail slew with him and I, I couldn't find him and i'm like bob come here bob get over here and they said i know i looked to my right and here's bob three feet away i'm like no not you the dog go back to your spot <laughs> <laughs> and just if I say Bob, just and it's derogatory, I'm talking to my dog. <laughs> yeah, I remember just looking over like, oh, hey, one of you is listening. <laughs> oh, classic. Yeah, I will was... never forget that. It was uh, it was a very fun experience to be in the field with Bob. Yeah. both of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll never name my dog Bob again. <laughs> well, well, thanks. That's a good uh, a bit of advice for any listener out there. If you if you have a, a hunting partner, steer away from naming your dog with the same name as your hunting partner. <laughs> I worked yeah. with a guy that just, he uh, he decided to name his dog. And people can name their dogs what you want. But he, he named his dog very human names like mm -hmm. Rick and steve <laughs> it's like, i can't i can't do that <laughs> uh, i phil that's a that's a good name for a dog right phil, phil. <laughs> all right um well i want to before we dive into the drought discussion let's let's thank our uh, our partners uh, first one, very, very appropriately, uh, thanks to South Dakota Tourism, South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, create your pheasant hunting story in a state loaded with tradition. Find public land maps and planning tools for a South Dakota adventure this season at huntthegreatest.com. And also thanks to the official ammunition of pheasants forever and quail forever federal premium ammunition here's a word from federal the flush so fast it hardly seems real so vivid the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers it's why we change the way upland loads are built with prairie storm Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. All right. So, last episode of On the Wing podcast, we talked with Dr. Scott Taylor. Um, the, the focus of that conversation was about the North American pheasant wild pheasant plan 
but we did talk a little bit about the drought. We're going to dive deep in into the drought, what it means to North and South Dakota with, with both Matt and Rachel. But before we talk about current situation, I want to set the stage with kind of what a drought means for pheasant biology, uh, what, what it means to reproduction. So let's start, Rachel, kind of give us the pheasant nesting in re-nesting and brood rearing 101, biology level 101 overview for um, what pheasants um, do in the case of a drought and predation and, and kind of what happens in the springtime for us to create more birds on the landscape. Thanks, Bob. I, this is great. I love getting to be a biologist again. A lot of times I spend my time in front of the computer and lately it's been just paying invoices. So talking biology <laughs> is a ton of fun. Um, you know, obviously, and I'm, I'm going to relate this a little bit to what's happening in North Dakota, talking about pheasant season. So obviously as we overwinter birds, you know, the hens are going to be responsible for, for egg laying. And if a hen can come through the winter with a better body condition, that sets her up for a better nesting season. She's going to be um, a healthier bird going into nesting, which likely means she's going to lay more eggs um, and a larger clutch. You know, if we have more eggs being laid, that's the likelihood of more chicks being born. Um, so at least in North Dakota and even in South Dakota, you mentioned it kind of in the intro that we had a very mild winter. We didn't, we hardly had, you know, snow cover. So the birds weren't stressed with weather extremes. There was food availability because the fields weren't snow covered or crusted over. So, you know, the hens came out of winter in excellent condition. Now we had a bit of a dry fall in summer last year. Hmm. So if sites were managed or something like that, then they probably didn't get a lot of regrowth on vegetation. And so nest, you know, coming in out of winter, a dry winter without a lot of snow melt, you know, I'm, I'm guessing our nesting habitat was probably a little bit delayed in the, re the spring regrowth just because it was dry. Um, but that being said, I think, you know, the hens probably started nesting and, and you know, we're probably pretty successful uh, with nesting this year, you know, having, finding that undisturbed cover, you know, where they can have, they can be concealed. They're not going to be seen by predators, both at ground level or above, um, you know, overhead. Um, but then, you know, the critical point with drought a lot of times is what happens after those chicks hatch. Mm. Um, and that's kind of the stage we're at right now. I think, you know, the, we've got nest hatching, I was looking back at some some data before the the podcast and you know a major, in North Dakota a majority like 95% of our nesting is going to happen between April 15th and July 15th. There's some nesting that's going on after mm -hmm. July 15th but it's pretty minimal the the bulk of our nesting happens between that April 15th and that July 15th date. So we're coming up on you know the end of nesting season or nesting season starting to taper off. We've got broods out on the landscape. And those broods need insects the first couple weeks of life. And insects don't happen unless we, unless we have enough moisture in the ground for them to hatch or have green vegetation for them to feed on. So again, when we have a drought, we're dry, everything's crispy out there. We see a lot fewer insects out there on the landscape to feed those pheasant chicks. So let's back up just for a second and talk about nesting, re-nesting, and potential for third nesting, and, and what that means in terms of um, what, what situation will a pheasant re-nest, and then how many eggs 
um, during a first nest versus what happens kind of second and potentially third and what that means overall to a population. Yeah. And I, I mean, if you look back at the the science, you know, those those nests that are initiated earlier in the season have more eggs and have a more likelihood, have a higher likelihood of success. Every time a pheasant hen has to re-nest because her nest was destroyed, those are resources that she no longer has available to her because she put resources, you know, her body resources into that first nest. So mm. if she re-nest, likelihood is that clutch, the number of eggs she lays is going to be fewer than what was laid in her first nest. And that goes to say that, you know, even with a third nest, I mean, pheasants are um, notorious for being uh, just persistent re-nesters. They will re-nest, re-nest, re-nest. Um, an interesting thing. So up in North Dakota, we had a pretty um, severe drought back in 2017. And we have a, a chapter leader who also does a bit of research down in the Southwest part of the state. And he said that drought was so bad that hens actually abandoned re-nesting because they had withdrawn their body resources so much and there wasn't enough insects, you know, cause they're gonna, normally pheasants will eat grain, but as they're trying to build their body reserves, they need that protein source too, just like chicks. And he said the drought had gotten so bad and there were so few insects that those hens had just exhausted their resources and they just stopped re-nesting. Mm. Um, I haven't heard much, you know, I don't, I'm sure he's doing some research in, in monitoring hens this year, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, coming out of this season, how the hens nested and everything. So it doesn't take a mathematician to think about what the prospects are. Like, like that first nest average clutch size of eggs is probably 11, right? 11 eggs. Then the second drops down to maybe seven to nine, something like that. And then the third attempt, maybe three to five eggs, just rough numbers. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not hard to extrapolate like, the more first nests, you know, the, without predation, with favorable weather that can be pulled off, the better likelihood a big, quote unquote, explosion in bird numbers can be. Um, the other piece to that is, so if, if the nest, say a skunk walks by and predates a nest, that hen pheasant will re-nest a second, maybe a third time. But if that um, clutch hatches, even one egg, right? One egg hatches, um, and then it gets predated. Say a, a house cat comes by and eats eats the brood. Oh, um, <laughs> they're out there, right? They're, they're, feral cats are bad yep, news. They are, right? yes. Um, but if if that feral cat takes out a brood of pheasants, that that hen is not going to give another nesting attempt. It, that's correct, isn't it? Yes. So that's what, you know, and I think that's a common misconception people have is sometimes they'll see, you know, especially driving along the roadsides, they'll see a hen pheasant and they might see chicks of two different sizes. Mm. And I think that the natural is to just jump to the assumption that, oh, she must be raising two broods when all likelihood there is another hen, you know, hiding in the ditch vegetation that has, you know, it's two broods, they've just mixed together. Um, mm. But yeah, you're, you're completely correct, Bob. You know, if the eggs are depredated, a hen will re-nest. But if she hatches that, if she hatches a nest successfully, and successfully means all eggs or one egg, mm. then, you know, if that, if that chick gets depredated or is lost through a weather event, then she's, she's done nesting for the year. Uh, what about... 
it, it, we talked early on the winter was pretty mild, not a lot of snow cover. Um, so this is the optimist in me <laughs> um, that, you know, it was pretty early spring across much of the pheasant range. Things melted quick. We had kind of an early warm up. So this is me projecting into the mind of a hen pheasant. It's like conditions were good to start nesting early. Did do hens take advantage of conditions when they're good or is it more driven by photo period? Um, like help me understand what's going on in this, in the head of a hen. <laughs> are they, are they going to, did they nest early or is it, you know, soup to nuts? Some maybe did some, you know, based on conditions or when the mood struck, they started initiating a nest during quote unquote normal time. What, um, what's normal for, for when a hen nests? So I think there's probably some, there's going to be some beginning date that they're not, you know, even though we had a super mild winter and we had spring like weather in March or even the end of February, I don't think a hen is going to, because there it's a, it's a combination between temperatures and then photo period that causes that nest to initiate. So, you know, I, I don't think there, there's going to be a, a beginning date where they just aren't going to nest before that date because the photo period isn't lining up. Their hormones aren't cycling the way they would. Mm. Um, but, you know, I don't, I mean, with an early spring and warm temperatures, there definitely wasn't snow on the ground at the mm. beginning of April this year that would prevent them from nesting. Um, but again, like I mentioned, because at least in North Dakota, because we, we did have a dry summer and a dry fall, um, vegetation regrowth might have been the one limiting factor that really kept them from starting too early in that, you know, there was cover out there that just wasn't adequate enough gotcha. for nesting cover yet until we got a little bit of regrowth. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to jump in quick and South Dakota game fishing parks used to do a whole bunch of surveys. Um, and actually I got to do that as an intern for a while where you go sit opening weekend of pheasant season in those game cleaning sheds and you had a, a little gauge and you would, age chicks and mm. they did that for 30 years and they found their peak hatch is always that first week of june mm -hmm. there's some variation a week here and a week there if you look at the long-term trends um you don't see like a month of head start um unfortunately but you're raiding <laughs> on my parade <laughs> you see a week here and there and and, and you're like this a week is a big deal mm -hmm. um and True. i do think down here we probably saw it pushing that front end a little bit um it's not a dramatic shift but i would say um yeah it, it might have been a week or so earlier um, i know we're, i'm definitely seeing some big chicks bob um, was just really hoping for those like full plume roosters <laughs> I know, you, know, fully... we get, you know he didn't want to have to determine if that was a young rooster yeah. or a hen he just wants everything with long tails and <laughs> just, just perfect yeah <laughs> and well, actually we'll, we'll see more of them shifting late then okay. we went early. It seems like down here mm. um, have later hatches sometimes, but um, yeah, you don't see those big swings. I mean, it was pretty consistent that first week of June, and that's why they, they stopped doing it because it was pretty much the same every year. Okay. Um, before you give the the overview of each state, one more quick question. You, you talked about the importance of insects for protein. Um, I'm curious about the importance of dew for for pheasants because I mean you don't I don't ever see either photography or live birds like 
saddling up to the side of a slough and drinking water, right? Uh, or, or stream. My assumption is that pheasants get the majority of their moisture eating greenery with dew on it or the moisture that's in plants or eating insects that have moisture like grasshoppers, there's moisture in it. Is that a correct assumption based on the non-biologist uh, <laughs> vocalizing it here on the call? Um, and we'll go to Matt with this. What's what's the importance of dew and what where where do pheasants get their their moisture from? Yeah, and that's a common question we get. because um, and you'll see, especially in dry years, you'll see birds congregating around stock dams and wetlands and stuff. And everybody goes to, you know, naturally goes to well they're they're drinking. Mm -hmm. Um in reality, you know, th you know, it's, that's where the bugs are at. Mm -hmm. um, those bugs are looking for that wet area too. And that's down in those, those wet zones, those riparian areas. Um, they get 90 some percent of their, and it's never hundred percent, but from bugs and this off that greenery, like you said, do that's on the greenery while they're eating it. That's where they, they, they need to get their moisture from. That's where they get their moisture from. Um, they just sometimes in dry years congregate around wetlands um, because that's mm. where there's the most amount of insects. So, your your non-biology view is correct on that yeah it's 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 all about the bugs i mean whenever mm. whenever we're talking pheasants we got to talk bugs because that drives our populations um well consequently we just got done celebrating pollinator week right the connection between bugs and birds i also think about we did a series of podcasts this winter about the the western quail species gambles um, uh, um scalies uh california quail merns and, and without with, without exception the biologists in the southwest would talk about finding birds in association with windmills right and it, for hunters that hunt the southwest or hunt desert quail always like hunt windmill areas and the the connection is the exact same, but it's as what you talked about, Matt, the connection between greenery and bugs. Um, it's just, I think intuitively it's more clear for the desert birds, right? Because in a desert, water is like the, the chalice, right? The holy right. grail. When you find the windmill, you find the water, creates the greenery, creates the insects, and that's where the birds are. And it's easy to draw the the A equals Z. When you live in, you know, the breadbasket of America, the Great Plains, farm country, it's not as in a normal year, water isn't as much of a limiting factor. So the, the dispersion of the birds is sort of all over the place, right? Whereas in a drought, um, it, you, you can sort of extrapolate, extrapolate that windmill analogy to a drought and find water, find green, find bugs, find birds. And that's probably, um, probably going to be true of some successful bird hunters this year. Yep. They're going to look for, for moisture. Right. I would say, Bob, instead of finding the windmills, you know, we talked a little bit um, and I think we'll get into this later, but, you know, precip maps, look at mm. precipitation maps, because in a drought, just find the areas that it rained. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's a So it's, that's a great point, Rachel. And you think about find the precip maps where it rained and it's going to be those conditions are going to be good for reproduction and to hold the birds. 
Now, here's a naive non-biologist question. Um, you know, we talk about our favorite birds, pheasants and quail, living in roughly a two-mile radius. In a drought, how far will a pheasant travel to find moisture? Is there a, is that something that <laughs> I, I'm asking kind of an off off the script question. <laughs> I think he's uh, trying to stump us. I think he's trying to stump, stump <laughs> us. Yeah. Has there been research done on that or any idea I, how far they'll go to find moisture? I haven't seen it on, on a drought situation. I have seen it with nesting. Mm. Oh, and they move a lot more than we think. Um, especially when they're going from an initial nest attempt to a second nest attempt. Um, there was some research done in the south central part of the state that they had birds moving 20 miles. Um, really? So they will move. Um, they can pack up and haul quite a ways. It was it was eye opening. I mean, I, you know, 20 years ago in college, which sounds weird to say 20 years ago, I'll just <laughs> just throw that out there. Um, we thought every the bird lived, spent its whole life in a mile. Yeah, that's just where it was at. Then it slowly went to two miles. Um, mm -hmm. But there's some research that they'll pack up and move for nesting and drought. I don't know. Um, that's a great question. Is that hens or roosters? That was, hen, that was hens moving. Okay, um, to, find, ever, to find to uh, find good quality nesting habitat. Yep. They, yeah. Okay, they oh. were you know it didn't work here. They so they must have you know in their little their mind they said this isn't the good spot to be at. I'm gonna go mm -hmm. search, and it was routine to see him move four or five miles. Wow. Okay. Just for comparison, and again, not to stump you, but I I'm, I know you're both. Um, have a strong affinity for the prairie grouse uh, species too, chickens and sharpies. And, and it, I know that pheasants are a distant relative, but if we can compare, prairie grouse will travel, you know, miles, no right. problem, right? I mean, like a, a sharp tail, it's nothing for a sharp tail to fly 10 miles in an evening, right? Right. Yeah, they... And they evolved in this situation. They're they're used to this stuff, and they are way more mobile than the pheasant is. Um, yeah, yeah. Like you said, go ahead, Rachel. Historically, you know, prairie grouse used to be what short distance migrants. You know that yeah. that's kind of the 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 history why when you shoot a grouse, they have red breast meat versus a pheasant. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. they were they were they evolved with longer flight patterns and stuff, and it was yeah. moving and tracking those resources. Yeah, a couple miles a day, just just being a grouse is not a, a big deal. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and I think that there's some some radio collared sage grouse that they've tracked from southern Canada to Wyoming. You know, I yeah. mean, and that's a you know we call them the bombers, right? <laughs> they're, right. They're right. the big birds. But all right, yeah, let's go ahead, Matt. It was you know it, it's not uncommon in the fall, especially with prairie chickens, to when they dial in a food so to get food and I mean, you'll you'll see them coming from miles just across mm -hmm. the horizon to one sunflower field or something like that and that used to be how people in south dakota hunted them was mm -hmm. was find those food sources and birds from miles around would come into that one sunflower field and you'd basically pass shoot them like you did geese mm -hmm. um so they would yeah moving for a grouse is not a big deal um Last question on prairie grouse, and then I promise we'll talk about this. Um, my my assumption is that the the situation in a drought 
has the same impact on prairie grouse that it does on pheasants. Is there any anything that you would say grouse can weather a drought any better or worse than pheasants, or is it, are, are all of our birds and our favorite birds in kind of the same same situation? Yeah, they you know they they're still dependent on the insect production, so they're going to cycle just mirror pheasants. Um, okay, a hard drought they're not going to weather it any better um, just because they're, they need the bugs too. Um, that's kind of the basis for all of, all of those gallinaceous birds. All right. North Dakota, mild winter, um, dry spring, current drought. And when, when you look at the drought.gov, which is the uh, drought, drought map, North Dakota appears to be, and let's take Arizona out of the mix because Arizona <laughs> looks like it's in in tough set of circumstances too. But um, North Dakota looks to be the epicenter of a really, really dry spring and summer. How are how are conditions for um, uh, for, for North Dakota pheasants right now, Rachel? They're dry. I mean, there's not a part of the state you know that's not in some form of drought, we range, I think the lowest rating we have right now is moderate drought. And we have parts of, you know, parts of the state really, you know, especially if you look at like our North central part of the state, um, that's an exceptional drought. Mm. Um, you know, I said, I mentioned before that I came out to North Dakota in 2003. So I haven't been around, um, you know, 2017 was a pretty substantial drought, but not as bad as this year. But, you know, you hear the talk and like 1988 was the last major drought we had. And, you know, the conversations are around how we're surpassing that drought right now with with uh, moisture or lack of moisture. So it's dry out there. Um, definitely for sure, especially, you know, like I said, in that north central part of state really focused. You know, if you look at Lake Sakakawea and then kind of go up to the northeast around there, um, those are parts of the state that just haven't you know, they just haven't hit the, hit the rains that we have had. Mm. Um, but there are parts, you know, I mean, there is even the areas that moderate drought, you look in the, the Southeast part of the state. Um, and then, you know, a, a little pocket in the Southwest part of the state that are doing better. Um, they're getting timely rains when the rains come through, I guess they get lucky mm. and get them. Um, but yeah, it's dry. Um, pastures are dry, you know, ranchers and Stuff are looking for forage up here. Um, we are hearing a few reports of broods, but not, you know, anecdotally, it's not, you know, people aren't counting, you know, seeing them everywhere. Mm. And our state game and fish hasn't started doing their, I think they'll start pretty soon, sometime this month, they'll start with their summer roadside brood counts. So that'll give us a better idea how birds are faring too. So when I think about North Dakota, and I know things have changed a little bit with, with, the climate change and also just the changing farming practices um, as you move north there's more corn there's more beans than there once was there was a you know it used to be wheat and flax and sunflowers and sort of things are moving progressing marching north but when I think about North Dakota I always think about nine, interstate 94 from say Fargo clear across to Dickinson and everything south of that, you know, Mott, Hedinger region, that, that, that's kind of the, for lack of a better term, pheasant capital of the, of North Dakota. And when I look at the map, 
it does, you know, it, you're right. It's, it's pretty significant drought across the state, but like you mentioned, some of those areas that are the best historical pheasant um, destinations appear to be in better shape than kind of the majority of the state. Yeah, I mean, I always I always use the nine ninety four I ninety four analogy as well. Um, you know, obviously, you know, historically the Southwest has really been. I always break the state up into quarters. You know, mm. Northeast, Northwest, Southwest, um, Southeast. But the Southwest has always been our traditional stronghold. Um, and if you look at the drought map, you know, that's kind of an area where they are getting you know some rains. They you know if a storm move, moves through the state they seem to be getting some precipitation. So the drought is not as severe there, although they still are, you know, still are abnormally dry. Um, and then you move over to the Southeast, which, um, you know, you go back a decade, you know, 10, 15 years, the Southeast was really a, a hot pocket for pheasant, you know, numbers as well and a good hunting hotspot. I think, uh, I think North Dakota tourism still counts Ellendale as a, as a pheasant hunting hotspot. And I know I, I hunted down in the Southeast quite a bit, um, but that area too is they're receiving some moisture. They didn't start out as dry as the rest of the state. Um, and there's there's habitat over in the southeast, even though it's predominant, you know, predominated by agriculture. There's some habitat, and I think mm. there's some possibilities if you find the habitat. There's moisture out there that supported the birds. It, it, kind of the moral of the story that I I think about, and it's all relative. When when I think about North Dakota as you know the premier or let's say one of the <laughs> you know arkansas north dakota the premier duck hunting states in the country right yeah i was like matt was giving you the eye well, i was starting to get matt. a little uh, side well, eye there north dakota is well on a pheasant perspective i think north dakota is oddly become a bit of a sleeper state from a pheasant perspective over the course of the last couple of years, which, which is really because, you know, it wasn't very long ago that, you know, 700,000 pheasant harvest was, was sort of the norm in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And North Dakota, I believe is number one or number two states in terms of CRP acres lost in the last decade i for for some reason i think washington state is number one and north dakota is number two in terms of total number of acres that have come out of the program and with it the bird numbers have have dropped a little bit but when weather is right um you know there's a fair amount of birds on the landscape in north dakota and it is you know no doubt about it a top four pheasant producing state and it's oddly become a sleeper long-winded comment here <laughs> but when you think about waterfowl north dakota arkansas texas california you know those are the kind of the big four waterfall states and for the northern part of the country you know going to north dakota is sort of a rite of passage for for duck hunters times are exceptionally difficult for waterfall hunters in North Dakota. I mean, I, I talked to uh, John Devney at Delta Waterfall, who's based in, in Bismarck, and it's like temporary and seasonal wetlands in North Dakota are are non-existent. They're, it's just dry. And I know Rachel just 
I know you're a hardcore passionate waterfowler and and I know a lot of our listeners love chasing ducks and geese too. So give us a uh, overview of what things are like for waterfall right now in the state. Yeah, I mean, you hit it on the head and John was right. I mean, our our seasonal and temporary wetlands, which are the 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 very important ones for breeding pairs, you know, as ducks fly up from the south, that's where they decide to settle. They need those seasonal and temporary wetlands. And and you're right, they're dry this year. And so, um, you know, breeding duck numbers are down this year. So that means production is going to be down. And so a lot of times when people come to North Dakota to hunt, um, they're shooting a lot of resident birds, a lot of birds that were produced here in the state. And so I predict we're going to have far fewer waterfowl produced in North Dakota um, than in previous years. So that'll be a challenge, you know, because it's always, <laughs> the young ones are always easier to decoy yeah. <laughs> and a little more naive. Um, that being said, you know, the last few years we've been wet and I do, you know, I do a lot of waterfall hunting, both, you know, in potholes and in fields. And, you know, a lot of the pothole hunting that we would do, especially some of our traditional potholes that we would hunt had just gotten too deep in the mm. last few years. So, you know, this drought, um, you know, as unfortunate as it is, you know, prairie wetlands need to dry out to cycle and be uh, productive. So while we'll, you know, lose some nesting habitat and lose some breeding birds this year, it'll be good thing for those seasonal and temporaries to dry out as in the long term for, for wetland production. Um, but then I think about some of the the more semi-permanent wetlands that I had hunted before that were too deep. You couldn't put decoys out there without a boat. You're always over your waders or something. Mm. Uh, you know, this drought's going to dry them out. So they might, you know, they might be able, might be able to get back out there and hunt those areas this year. Um, huh. But yeah, waterfall will be interesting. Yeah. There'll be, there'll be some birds here though. It's North Dakota after all. Yeah. Well, but, and I, I bring it up because it also puts in perspective like waterfall, in the connection between water, whereas pheasants, you know, the situation's tough, but there's some silver lining. I mean, and, and there's a couple of pockets when you look at the state that bird numbers are probably going to be um, pretty darn solid when the game and fish department gets done with their August roadside counts. And even in a drought, um, pheasants can find a way to survive and, and produce and thrive. And, um, you know, although they travel more than we probably expect, um, our birds are a little bit more local. And if you can find where it rained and it did rain some places, yeah. you're probably going to be able to find some birds. Yeah. And there'll be pocket. I think even within those areas that it rained, you have to find the habitat and where it rained and then hope the birds were there. But I always say, you know, a little bit of boot leather. Yeah. And you'll find birds. All right, let's let's shift our focus south, just by one state, South <laughs> South Dakota. Uh, Matt, what's uh, what's the current situation like in, in in the state of South Dakota? Yeah, so like I was saying earlier, um, if we did this a week ago, I'd have probably a little different tone to my voice. Mm. Um, we're finally, you know, we're we're dry, just like North Dakota. Um, we are dry across the state. Um, we're in extreme droughts in parts of the state, which, you know, that north central and south central part of the state are in extreme droughts, um, which are kind of our historic, you know, last 15 years are our hot spots for pheasants. Um, and that's still troublesome. Um, it, it's been dry going back to August of last year. So on the positive side, like you were talking earlier too, you know, our hens 
came into this spring with really good body health. Um, so I'm hoping that's going to help, you know, those second and third clutches be a little bigger, um, a little better. Cause there was definitely some renesting going on. Hmm. Um, but you know, since then you, in this last five days, we've started to catch moisture. Um, which yeah, we're going to, I would definitely predict we're going to see smaller brood sizes because those birds that hatched, some of those chicks didn't make it through that normally would. Um, but this is going to help keep the ones we have alive. Hmm. Um, this, these rains and, and, and the encouragement is, you know, looking at the 10 day forecast, um, we're, we're switching it up a little bit. We've cooled down about 15, 20 degrees into the seventies and eighties, um, and it's supposed to stay that way for the next 10 days. Um, we're also going to be getting rain every couple of days. We're going to get rain through their predicting, which, you know, typical catch 22. It's great for us. Um, it's at the cost of these, those Western quail. Um, there's a hot, there's a high pressure zone sitting down in the four corners part of the country. Mm. Um, that's, that's swinging the moisture around, around that Southeast part of the country. And it's, it's coming through South Dakota and Nebraska Iowa and Minnesota are supposed to really get rain. Um, Rachel, you're supposed to get a little bit more, but not not like we yeah, are. I was looking at the forecast, and at least throughout the week, we have a couple chance, you know, a few days where we actually have chances of rain, which is yep. kind of, you know, not not something we've seen a lot of this year. So yeah. as as we're recording this, it's July the seventh. So the rain that's come through for what Matt's referring to is over the Fourth of July holiday yep. weekend. Rachel, did, did North Dakota get a little pre precipitation over the holiday too? We did. God, you're making me remember dates, but it, <laughs> we, it was <laughs> it was just a few days ago, I know. But, um, yeah, it didn't rain on the 4th, but I think the 5th we had some rain come through, yeah. if okay. I recall correctly. Yeah, that's kind of here too. And it was, you know, the, the great thing about this one was it went from North Dakota border to Nebraska border, and it came mm. from out of Wyoming and went all the way across the state. Um, and I called friend yesterday. I was calling friends all over the state. You know, just, what'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? Yeah. And it was, you know, three quarters of an inch to two and a half inches. Um, yeah. All, and it was an all day cloud cover, cool, slow soaker rain. So I think it, it's going to do us a lot of good. Um, mm. We'll wait and see, um, see if the bugs respond. Um, like I think they're going to, um, you know, bugs are ones that they can sit in that, that larvae stage and stuff and for a long time. So I think we'll get a big flush and so that should help us with the chicks we have on the ground. Um, I'm, I'm the most optimistic pessimist you'll meet. Uh, um, Does that make you a realist then? A realist. Let's go with that. That sounds better. <laughs> but no, I, I, I really think watching that pattern, um, I think it's going to help us a lot. Um, I mean, that's still, we don't know what August is going to do. Um, mm -hmm. This is really going to help us in July, um, which mm -hmm. is a real critical time for us. Um, yeah, but we're, we're seeing and talking with those folks. They're all seeing broods, a lot of, a lot of broods. Um, they're not, like I said, they're not the nine, seven, eight, nine chicks still alive. They're smaller. Mm -hmm. They're that three, four, five chicks in the brood. Um, so we definitely lost broods on that front end. Um, and the other thing we haven't talked about, you know, we talk about the the rain part of it, but mm -hmm. it's been hot. I mean, we're yeah. June. We had I don't know, I didn't see the numbers, but I mean, we had several days in the hundred plus degree 
Mm. range which is not normal for us um yeah we broke we broke some high temp records up here in june like yeah it's not abnormal to get a couple hundred degree days in july or august up here right. but in june that's a little odd and we had yeah, it's not <laughs> You're right yeah you know here was in 100 pushing 108 109 degrees oh. in june um, wow it was it <laughs> it was cooking um so i think that's kind of that hurt us too with some of those chicks but they're there. The broods are still there. So I think if we get this bug flush, we'll hold on to what we have. Um, and like I said, I was out the other day mowing some CRP for thistles because, of course, me and my luck, I planted CRP in August last year. Mm. And we haven't got rain since. So it's my fault. Mm. Um, we haven't got much moisture since there. So I was out doing some thistle mowing. Um, and I in, in 80 acres, I put up five broods, but they're all five different different stages. Um so it's a wide bearing hatch that we have going on here, but at least they're out there. They're out there. They're out there and they, they look strong. They look healthy the birds that chicks I saw. So it's, I'm holding out hope. Um, we were, cause we were set up for a gangbuster year. <laughs> so when, when I recorded with Dr. Scott Taylor last week, he said a couple of times, um, you know, it, it's not too late yet there's still hope for if it rains. Yep. And in the week since then, it's rained. It's so rained. it's it feels to me like what Scott wasn't saying and what what you, you know, if I'm putting words in, in both your mouth, um, we were right at kind of the finish line for it to be too late as we are entering yep. the 4th of July. If we hadn't got that precipitation, it could have been, catastrophic but the fact that we got it right when we got a little bit of rain right when we did and it's like a good soaker and the temperatures sort of um you know we lost in some instances 30 degrees milder temperatures like that was just what the doctor ordered um yeah is that am i putting too many words in your mouth matt no, no, you're right. I mean, like I said, a week ago, I would have had a whole different tone on this. And they were, weren't forecasting a lot of this to happen. Um, we were at that critical point. You know, mm. like Scott said, you know, I went back and listened to make sure I didn't contradict Scott because he's the smartest guy. <laughs> he's the smartest guy I know. So. He's got more degrees than us. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I worked with Scott in the same office for several years. And whatever Scott says, that's that's the right answer. <laughs> but you know, we were at that point where if we didn't catch something, it was going to be catastrophic. We were going to lose lose pretty much all our reproduction. Um, and luckily, you know, God shined down on us. And, you know, he looks out for us fool-hearted upland hunters. And, <laughs> and he produced, you know, he, he got some rain. We got rain around here now, and I think it's going to buy us time. Hmm. We're, not, I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Um, we're still going to need to catch some more end of July and into August, um, just to get some more flush of vegetation and stuff like that. Um, but it definitely, definitely saved us right now. When you talk about insects and the insects that pheasant uh, broods are eating, and I think you, uh, Rachel mentioned this too, I automatically think grasshoppers. Is their diet broader? than grasshoppers because when you when you clean a young rooster on opening day and you pop open the the crop it's a grasshopper smorgasbord right and what else are they eating bugs wise um during mid to late summer 
Yeah. The easy answer on that is uh, whatever gets in front of their beak. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, Ron Leathers, who's, who's, you know, works with PF too, um, did a lot of research on that back in grad school. And they are, if it gets in front of their beak, they're going to eat it. Hmm. Um, but, you know, as those chicks, as you look at those chicks, a lot more of the smaller beetles and the smaller bugs are what they pick up. Um, and that's what they eat and stuff. Um, we hope grasshoppers yeah, don't come till later in the season. Yeah. You think about a little pheasant chick and you get a big, you know, a big grasshopper. That's, that's a pretty big mouthful for a, yeah. you know, a two day old pheasant chick to capture. So yeah, I'd echo Matt and that those, you know, soft bodied, smaller insects are really important those first few days until the chicks grow a little bit bigger okay. and yep. can, you know, wrangle those grasshoppers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, and you gotta look at their height too. And, and something yeah. I'd, I learned from Ron was bugs have a different layer that they like to be in on a plant structure too. Mm. So their diets can change throughout the year as they get taller and they're always going to feed down below them, but they're not going to feed too high up. Oh, okay. So you kind of got, there's whatever's at their level at that point is what they're, they're feasting on. Okay. So but, beetles and ants and slugs and all sorts and of spiders things. Spiders and. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. All that fun <laughs> stuff. What, what about, um, are they eating very much? greenery and seed sort of plant material or does that come later that comes later predominantly especially the seed end of stuff um i always kind of view it as and when i talk to people about it 85 to 90 percent of their diet is bugs and that other 10 percent is what they happen to grab when they're grabbing a bug sitting on grass a blade of grass or something like that i don't you know they're getting they're they're getting some in that diet but i don't know how much of it they're actually seeking out or more it's just when they're grabbing that bug they're they're getting some plant with it. Okay. So so let's turn the conversation just as, as we start to wind down here to our farmer and, and rancher friends. And I obviously you're you're both biologists, not not farmers, but we can't do we can't create habitat without our partners in the farm and ranch community. And you know, we, we look at CRP in North Dakota and South Dakota and how much, how many birds are produced on, on CRP. Um, and, and the acres now that are, are in need for what we expect to be a declaration for emergency haying and grazing of, of CRP acres. What does that mean um, for, for birds and how does that benefit habitat in uh, in addition obviously benefiting our farmer and rancher friends what long-winded question what's emergency hay and grazing mean to a pheasant let's start there and and start with uh start with matt yeah so that's that's one of those balancing you actually got to make as as a biologist is what with the birds and then what the community needs um those farmers and ranchers um we always got to make sure that you know without those small farmers and ranchers we're in trouble mm -hmm. so we got to help them out um and luckily you know for us they've been able to to push it back as far as when they're going to get in there um the more time every day we buy from when they go in and do emergency hanging grazing on crp helps the birds out um you know our target in south dakota is july 15th um we want to anything earlier than that we feel like we're going to have some impacts on our birds especially with haying um, you know, grazing is a whole different thing. Um, mm. so I'll separate and talk about haying. Um, July 15th is kind of that spot where we want to make sure that we, we 
keep that cover on CRP. Past that point, the chicks, you know, are pretty much past that first three to four week stage of life. They can get out of the way, um, and it, its variability goes up. Um, you know, and that's something we, we're doing a lot of work. You know, going back to the grazing end of it and trying to see more cattle on our CRP and doing the management through cattle um, because the the impacts on the birds is a lot lower with cattle. Mm. Um, you know, they're out there just foraging and they're not a wide swath coming through at a high rate of speed. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's going to be something that I think the impacts are going to be minimal um, for the birds. Um, there's going to be a little bit, but it's going to be pretty minimal. Um, and it's going to definitely help out those ranchers and farmers way more. Um, a lot of folks, they're talking about record sales at the field, at the sale barns and stuff right now. It, they're, they're selling herds like crazy. Um, record need to help, sales help in terms that. of um, escalating the, or accelerating the sale of their, their animals yep. because of the drought and not, they don't right. have, this time, they time don't have food. year to date, yeah. yeah, year to date, folks are liquidating herds um, at a higher rate than they have in the past. Other, you know, even in 2017, they weren't liquidating herds hmm. like they are right now. Um, so we got to make sure we protect those folks. Um, and I think our birds have made it through. Um, so I don't think we're gonna have a big impact there. Um, mm -hmm. So it, you know, we've, we've dodged, not using the right word, but we're dodging bullets there too with every day we're gaining. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and Rachel, I know North Dakota, we just did a video on sort of some of the innovative ways that North Dakota in particular are working with the ranching community um, through grazing to um, improve habitat for birds while help benefiting ranchers. So explain, exp you know, for folks that are hardcore bird hunters might not understand how grazing, how cows on the landscape can actually benefit a pheasant. Explain that for folks. So, yeah, I mean, if we think about grasslands, uh, grasslands evolved with herbivores on the landscape. You know, historically it was herds of bison. Um, and now, you know, the the red and black bison has kind of taken that place. And so it's for grass, if we think about grassland health and what that means, you know, we want to see vibrant grasslands with high diversity and having cattle be those land managers, um, I think is is really important to the health of our grasslands. And when we have healthier grasslands, we're having higher quality habitat, both for our pheasants and our prairie grouse species. Um, I know I've fielded a few calls, you know, a lot of times up here in North Dakota, just in my time I've been in North Dakota, you know, moved out here in 2003, the management of our federal lands has changed. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not privy to the exact details because I don't work for the feds, but just as a hunter and seeing the change visually across the landscape, a lot of our, you know, WPAs, waterfall production areas are, are, we have a lot of them in North Dakota. It's public hunting access, both for waterfall and pheasants. When I first came out to North Dakota, a lot of these were, you know, maybe rank grass. They'd been invaded by invasive species mm. like Kentucky bluegrass or brome, and they just weren't being managed. Um, they were just kind of there. Ducks were nesting on them. That's fine. But just in my time in North Dakota, I've noticed that, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Services started managing those more intensely. They're haying some of them. They're getting cattle out there, um, which is great for grassland health and it's going to benefit nesting habitat. But as a hunter, um, you know, coming from North Dakota that maybe doesn't understand grassland ecology, you know, if you come across some of these WPAs 
that have been grazed or hayed, you know, in October, the cover is, you know, you've lost a lot of cover. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way I always explain it is, you know, we may sacrifice a few acres of hunting cover and habitat, you know, hunting quality hunting cover. I'm not going to call it habitat for a year, but just think big picture, you know, you know, take a step back and say, you know, long-term health of this ecosystem is going to be dependent upon that management. And so that's kind of the change that's taken place. And so this year, you know, being in the drought that we're in, um, you know, we're going to see some emergency haying and grazing. We're going to see some of our public lands opened up to haying or grazing so that we can help our private landowners out here in the state. Because like Matt said, I mean, we can't deliver conservation. We cannot create habitat in the Dakotas if we're not working cooperatively with our private landowners. So, you know, the conservation community has in North Dakota has always been open to make, you know, in times of emergency, you know, what can we do to help? And, you know, up here, Matt mentioned CRP, you know, the conservation community has really supported, you know, opening up CRP to hang or grazing early because we know those ranchers are hurting. We know they need forage. Um, nesting wise, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, most pheasant nests are, you know, done. We're kind of tapering off here by the mid-July. Um, what we do have some concerns about is we do lose some brood habitat when we go in and hay something. But again, I'll, I'll just echo what Matt said too. Um, if we can replace haying with grazing, the wildlife are going to benefit a little bit more. They just seem to be a little bit more compatible um, with cows on the landscape versus a hay machine. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, and it, it leads into a good reminder. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of folks look at North Dakota and South Dakota, if they're not lucky enough to live there, as destinations for October, November to, to, <laughs> to travel for, uh, for bird hunting. This year, you are going to need to pick up the phone um, and, and talk to biologists, talk to landowners, talk with family and friends and figure out um, if some of, in particular, walk-in areas that maybe are, you know, your plots in, in North Dakota, your walk-in program in South Dakota that is enrolled CRP into a walk-in program. Some of those acres, particularly if they overlay where the exceptional drought map exists, and you can look, um, drought.gov. If you are a person that um, that hunts in the you know the really red or the maroon even <laughs> portions of that map, that drought map, um, your need if if that's where you normally hunt, you normally hunt walk-in areas. You are going to need to get on the internet and get on the phone and find out um, if some of your favorite walk-in areas are are going to be hayed or grazed, and the likelihood is pretty high. Um, yeah. it, yep. the, the reality is people's livelihoods are at stake and, um, and it's a good habitat management tool to, to have, um, have it hayed or grazed once every three years. Um, in long-term that's going to benefit the birds. So it is. And I, I would, would say, I'd, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead Matt. <laughs> you I was just going to say, um, you know, along with, you know, doing that pre-scouting, you know, just if you're coming out to the Dakotas and I'll, I'll say this for South Dakota too, um, and you do hunt public walk-in access or other public land or even private land that you, you may have access to just plan, you know, maybe don't anticipate just driving up on your spot. You've hunted traditionally and having it look the same plan ahead a little bit, maybe take an evening scouting route and make sure the areas that you've kind of 
you know, e-scouted before your trip, um, have cover on them. Mm. Or maybe it's, you know, and know that maybe only half of a field got, got hate. It might be the half that's right by the road. Um, don't be afraid to walk over that hill and see what's on the other side of it that you can't see from the road too. Real yeah, good. You take the words. You took the word right out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> and I would say even it, it's going to require probably it's so widespread. What's you know the hanging that's going to be going on. Um, taking a trip either a couple weeks earlier, just come out scouting or like Rachel said, you know, come out a day earlier and drive around and scout. Um, don't roll up the day of your hunt on the field. I would mm. say you're, there's a high likelihood that it's going to look different than you have in the past. Um, but it's going to be so widespread that making a phone call or looking on the internet, you're probably not going to, we're not going to know um, all these areas and what's going on. So it's, it's probably going to take a trip out or, you know, a little bit early and looking around and actually scouting hard this year um, to find those spots. Cause when you find the habitat, there's gonna be a lot of birds in it. I got a feeling. Um, and like well, Rachel said, just cause the part by the road is hayed um, doesn't mean the whole thing's hayed. I would not take, take a windshield survey on that. I would get some boots out on the ground. You know, they can walk out on walking areas and stuff. You can go out there um, and scout. So, yeah, that's a great point. And that's where our, our friends at Onyx have a terrific tool uh, that you can take a look and see what's beyond that road, right? And, and see where the public lands exist beyond. And um, I'll remind our, our listeners that, you know, Onyx is a terrific um, partner of pheasants forever and quail forever. And um, please use the, the code, I believe it's pheasant, use the code pheasant um, on the Onyx website and you can get 20% off. Um, i also remind folks, um, there's a CRP general signup going on right now through July 23rd. And I believe the grasslands uh, practice within CRP is going on now through... Is it August 6th, I believe? Uh, so yeah. it, it, it's it's a good reminder if you own property that CRP, not only does it create habitat on those environmentally sensitive acres, um, protecting water quality, um, improving the health of soil, and I'm thinking about saline soils in, in both of yeah. your states, um, and folks can go back and listen to the Saline Soils podcast where we devoted an entire episode to, to how we're trying to improve the, those acres in, in the Dakotas. Uh, but, but CRP provides resiliency and a stabilizing tool for farmers and ranchers, even in a drought. Um, there, there's there's a benefit for having CRP in an operation right now that uh, is particularly if you, you own some cattle and you got some CRP, it's a, uh, it's a heck of a, a benefit to have CRP on the, um, in the mix for any producer right now. Um, so uh, again, please, if you're listening and you own some property, um, you can, Find Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Farm Bill Biologists on our website. There's a, a map of uh, where they're all located, or you can go into your local USDA service center and uh, find out a little bit more about what the soil rental rates are for, 
for CRP in, in your area. Anything you want to add there about the current signup, um, um, Rachel or, or Matt? I would just, you know, I like to have some positives at the end of a podcast. Uh, in talking with the, our team of biologists here in South Dakota, the interest is really high. That's uh, great. In CRP um, from landowners. Um, so that that's setting us up long term um, for that future. But yeah, demand and, and interest is the highest we've seen since probably the mid 2000s. Um, so I think, you know, that's going to be a real positive is is those numbers in the next few years are going to start coming online. Um, and we're going to see a lot of acres going in the ground. What are you seeing in North Dakota? Is interest pretty high in North Dakota for the current sign up, Rachel? I think so. Yeah. And I mean, we're hearing some um, positive feedback too, with the changes that CRP has went through. Um, the landowners are that are interested are, are pleasantly surprised with some of the incentives that were brought back. It makes, you know, it's, it's making CRP a more appealing option um, for landowners out there on the landscape. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more in new CRP on the landscape because everybody knows those first couple of years is great bird habitat. And like you mentioned a little bit, Bob, just added resiliency to our system. I mean, right now, you know, CRP is being used as an emergency forage. Um, you know, this isn't the last drought we're going to see. We're going to see them in the future. So if we can have more acres out there that are forage reserves for our farmers and ranchers, then, you know, we're going to have habitat and birds and we're going to have cattle on the landscape. Yeah, great point. Um, before before closing thoughts, Matt, um, tell us about the James River CREP, because that, um, that program is opened up once again for, for landowners too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of some more great news there. Um, you know, folks that are from have been tracking it, you know, for several years, we signed up 80,000 acres really fast in that program 10, 11, 10, 11 years ago. Um, it was really popular with landowners. Um, and then this, we ran out of money um, and couldn't get to the full 100,000 acres of enrollment. Um, since then, um, we've had some, some positive, you know, more hunters coming in and stuff, and the department's got the money now. And that sign up opened back up last year. Um, and it's proven to be popular once again. Um, you know, it's it's a CRP sign up, but producers get paid extra for letting the public onto it. Um, I would say we're going to be at 100,000 acre cap here within months. Oh. Um, I, I think we're going to max that program out really fast. Um, it's, it's proven to be very popular. Um, so having that back on is great. And in fact, we're talking about doing some new ones. Um, and taking that model out of the James River and moving it to a couple other watersheds. Um, and it's just a way to really get high quality, high, you know, habitat on that ground. And that's, that's something that the hunters have found. And we've heard a lot of feedback from is since it's tied to CRP, um, when you see those crep dots on the map, you know, there's going to be really good habitat to hunt. Um, so that's, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. For folks that hunt public land in South Dakota, the last decade, they know the James river crap signs because it, <laughs> it right. It, as Rachel yeah. pointed out the first couple of years of any CRP stand is, you know, a boon to wildlife. And when you yep. take the, those crep acres, not only is it wildlife habitat, not only is it benefiting water quality, which is why it's being targeted in the James River corridor. But in the James River CREP program, it was very innovative in that if it was enrolled, 
it was public access too. Right. And boy, there's the trifecta there. Water quality, <laughs> yeah. wildlife habitat, public access equals pheasants in the pheasant capital of South Dakota. And uh, yeah. it, it, I mean, I can't say enough about the um, positive experiences I've had on that public land. And that's the, the beautiful intersection between it's private land that landowners, thank you, have yeah. have enrolled it in public access. It's it's that open fields concept that we've talked about. Plots in North Dakota, Weha in Kansas, open fields and waters in Nebraska. It is just the perfect marriage between the public bird hunter and the private landowner. So, um, if you yeah. don't know about it. Um, please go see your local USDA service center. And if you, if you are a landowner who has participated as one bird honor, thank you. It's in virtually every state I've been in, I've, I've experienced those walk-in areas and they're just wonderful. Yeah. They're, they're just, they're vital and they're vital not only to that, but those little main street communities. Mm. Um, we've seen a lot of positive correlation between areas that have a lot of walk-in access, whether it's crap, or a state program, um, and you get a lot of dots on the map. People go there, and then they go to the main street, and they go to the cafes and things like that. So, it truly is that win-win-win for everybody. Um, it's just it's a great concept, great idea. Um, you know, those states that don't have strong programs, I still can't figure out why. Yeah, because it it's, works out so well for everybody. All right, we've come to the uh, the finish line for for today's conversation, and. I've already got thoughts on, we got to do a uh, podcast about the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition and community-based um, habitat um, efforts. But, but that's a, that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> so we can talk all day on that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one for a, for a future episode. So I'll be in touch, Matt, to, to line that up. Um, we're going to give Rachel the closing, closing thoughts. So we'll start with Matt. Um, what, what's your final thought as we, as we wrap up this overview of the, the Dakota drought? I would say, you know, my final thoughts on it are it, it's, we were at a critical point. Um, we've definitely dodged, dodged a bullet, um, at least down in South Dakota. Um, it, it's, it's just been very encouraging this last week. Um, it's raised the spirits of a lot of upland hunters I know. Mm. Um, we're not out of the woods yet by any means, but I think um, it, it's going to set us up to have a, a, a decent a decent hatch, decent recruitment, which what we were coming into with, you know, we were set up really well for just a blockbuster year. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it's going to be a good fall um, as long as, as these trends continue and August doesn't get out of hand. Um, I think we're gonna have a really good fall again. Um, it's it's looking like we dodged that bullet. That's uh, welcome news to a hundred and fifty thousand plus people. <laughs> I thought um, it'd make somebody's day. <laughs> uh, Rachel, closing thoughts—they're all yours. Oh, thanks, Bob. And I'm glad you said thoughts because I have a hard time just narrowing <laughs> it down to one. <laughs> so I guess the the bigger picture one is just it's it's habitat. Mm. I mean, we talk about drought, we talk about these weather issues, you know, bird health, but really it comes down to habitat on the landscape and we need it. We need more of it because when we have habitat on the landscape, that really allows those bird populations to rebound 
from these weather events or these climatic changes that we we don't have you know we don't have direct control over. I can't stop the drought today, but I can help people put more habitat on the ground. So that is my first. <laughs> it's all about the habitat. Ooh, and can my I have last, that one for mine too. You could, yeah, we can share it. It's a really important one. Um, and my last closing thought, more related to this podcast today, it's just simple. It's about the bugs, man. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, that's two very important thoughts. And we've said, you know, we've said it's about the bugs for maybe the last decade, right? We've said we can't control the weather, but we can control habitat for the last four decades. So they're both really, really important thoughts. Um, I'm so thrilled to have you both uh, on. You know, I, I mentioned it over and over on this podcast, you know, in an organization of 400 employees, 300 of them, thereabouts, are biologists, just like Rachel and, and, and Matt. And I think as we do these episodes, I hope our listeners can hear just the expertise that comes through um, no matter who we're talking to, you know, Matt said, Dr. Scott Taylor was the smartest. I don't know. I'll challenge it. <laughs> I don't want to have an IQ contest in, in our organization because I know where I'm going to end up on that spectrum. <laughs> oh, you hung around, around with us enough, Bob. You're giving yourself the short Yeah, if we're that. rubbing off on you, you can be like an honorary biologist. Yeah. <laughs> be careful there. I, <laughs> armchair biologists are more dangerous than you give them credit for. Honorary, honorary. Honorary. <laughs> well, I appreciate both of your time. This was really... Really interesting conversation, and 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 honestly, gave um gave everybody um, a dose of optimism here. Thankfully, a little bit of precipitation um, can go a long way. Hopefully, um, as the ten day forecast predicts, there's a little bit more rain coming. Um, all right, folks. I'm Bob Saint Pierre. Thanking you for listening to this episode of On the Wing podcast. And I'll remind you, even in a drought, always follow the dog, especially follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.